Hi, and welcome to More Than a Refresh, a podcast about data and the people who wrangle it. I'm Amanda Nystrom, the Chief Operating Officer at Command Prompt, a leader in open source excellence since 1997. We hope that you enjoy the podcast today and contact us for your Postgres and full stack needs, including 24-7 support. Find us at 503-667-4564 at commandprompt.com or at sales at commandprompt.com. Enjoy. More Than a Refresh is brought to you by Greenplum Database. Greenplum is a PostgreSQL-based, open-source, massively parallel database for analytics, machine learning, and AI. A VMware technology, Greenplum is a modern database that isn't limited by your data size or vertical scaling limitations. For more information or to get in touch, visit greenplum.org. Welcome to More Than a Refresh, a podcast about data and the people who wrangle it. Our guest today is Tom Michaels, professor of horticulture at the University of Minnesota and founder of the Open Source Seed Initiative. Our theme today is industrial hemp and its glories. How you doing, Tom? I'm doing well. It's really a pleasure to be back. Well, you know, I am glad that you're back. Uh, we have uh, quite an interesting topic here today. It's something that in my state, in Washington, uh, is probably not all that uh let's say uncommon to talk about because uh, hemp and cannabis is used in Washington quite a bit. Uh, but a lot of people uh, listening around the world uh, probably don't have a lot of the knowledge that you do in this, as well as the benefits that uh, industrialized hemp can bring. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and what your background is for those that didn't hear the previous episode? Absolutely. So I'm a professor at the University of Minnesota. I'm in the Department of Horticultural Science where half my time is spent doing teaching, mostly with uh, undergrads, but some graduate students as well. And the other part of my time is spent doing research. And over the years, uh, I have done a lot of uh, work with food crops, particularly with dry edible beans, but I also work with uh, sweet sorghum for syrup now and, uh, and some other crops like, uh, like lettuce and so on. But there's this theme of uh, I enjoy working with with uh, crops that I can eat. And recently, uh, once the once Minnesota had a, an industrial hemp pilot program that was approved, uh, I, I became interested in that because, of course, uh, hemp grain can also be used as food crops. So, so there we go. That's what I do. Well, I think a lot of people don't realize that. Um, you know, most people, when they think of mass crops, right, you're thinking corn and soy. Oh, right. absolutely. And, and there, I mean, <laughs> there's no wonder for that, right? You do it, enough traveling. You see oh, yeah. <laughs> from the interstate, there's not much else. Yeah, no, it, it, it's it's pervasive. And now we are starting to see, uh, but not just now, but over the past couple of decades, we've st actually started to see uh, health problems with the concentration of two primary ingredients, right? Um. We can get into that a little bit later, but I, I, I'm kind of curious though. I mean, obviously you mentioned one of the things you really enjoy is working with crops that you can eat. I'm also a big fan of that. Uh, I'm a master garden gardener from Oregon State uh, and I don't do as much of it as I used to, um, but I am a, I, I kind of got into this groove where if I can't use it, I don't plant it. So we have herbs, for example. Uh, and when, you know, in the garden season, we'll do tomatoes and peppers and things like that. And we don't normally do 
I don't know, that flowers, right? Not that there isn't an intrinsic value to flowers, but if they're not edible, it, it's like a one-off for us. Um, so I truly appreciate that. Um, now, your specialty is plant breeding and genetics. We actually got into that a little bit uh, on the previous episode when we were talking about the Open Source Seed Foundation. Um, can we talk, what are you focused on right now? I mean, you mentioned a little bit lettuce, but it's, it's really about hemp, right? That's right. That is, uh, the, the primary plant I'm working, uh, with now. I have always focused on trying to develop new varieties, new cultivars of the crops I work with for farmers, uh, to grow. Uh, for, for part of my career, I was very farmer oriented in terms of the characteristics that I was breeding for. So things that were higher yield, things uh, that were easier to grow, had a better architecture, but always with that lens of what can I do to make the farmer's job uh, easier. Uh, maybe in the last 20 years, I've switched to more the consumer view of things to as I started working more with organics, what can I do to improve flavor or, or edible quality or visual quality, those sort of things. So that's switched uh, a bit. But when I started moving uh, into hemp, uh, then the idea was, can we develop uh, new varieties of industrial hemp that are highly adapted to production in the upper Midwest here where I'm located? Now, that was, I'm glad you brought that up. That was going to be one of my points is that what we're really talking about here is we're not talking about Colorado. We're talking about Minnesota, right? where it gets so cold that you connect your buildings <laughs> so that you don't have to walk outside. <laughs> that is literally true. Yeah. On campus here, you can do a lot of walking without a coat. And that's on per that's because of minus 20, right? So yeah, I mean, there's cold and then there's your eyelashes flaking off, right? Um, I used to do a lot of winter backpacking and I found that, you know, my, my kind of break point was literal zero, right? Yeah. If, if it ever got below zero, I wouldn't even leave my tent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now with Minnesota, what's the growing, now I was, I was actually there last year. Uh, we went to, I think it was University of Minneapolis or something like that with my uh, daughter so that she could visit the campus. And it, it beautiful state, but you know, we were there in uh, like late October, right? So the weather was still reasonable. Um, but what kind of growing season do you have up there? So when I think about the length of the growing season, uh, one of the common name denominators we have across the country is corn production. So just using that as our relative marker, uh, early planting for corn in Minnesota uh, where I am here in southern Minnesota would be mid-April. Uh, and usually the corn is in by the beginning of May. Uh, and then harvest time would be sometime, say, in October, maybe the second week or so. So, uh, but again, another way to look at it, as a gardener, I think that the growing season pretty much starts first of May uh, as far as planting seeds. Wouldn't put transplants out yet, but, uh, and then ends in October. The, the weird thing about the place, though, as you were mentioning the cold, is it gets hot here, too. So we have the extremes. So to be in the low hundreds is, is not crazy. Uh, it, it happens. Uh, and so we have this short season uh, 
coming out of intense cold, but also we have this time of year, I think toward the end of this week, we might be certainly in the high 90s. So would you be one of those states where you, I mean, obviously you have four seasons, but people would say we have two seasons, summer and winter. Yeah, it's it's unfortunately true. We come out of out of really cold winters and snow and all of a sudden we have two or three weeks of spring and then bam, it's time to plant. So the soil heats up pretty quickly and, and so you can get in the ground pretty well. Yeah, that's interesting. So out here, I'm in Western Washington, Northwestern Washington, and uh, because of our proximity to the water, wow. it has a tendency to, I mean, often, I mean, obviously there's ways to do it with plastic and things like that. But if you just want to plant, it's not uncommon to not be able to plant until June because the, the, the overnight temperatures are just too cool. The soil doesn't heat up enough. Um, in fact, this year was like that. We had, a, I mean, it wasn't even until July that we had any real warmth. Wow. But um, you know, if you are growing something like, let's say Swiss chard or kale or something like that, you can take that through the whole winter, can't you? You can do late harvest, maybe cover it up a little bit. It's not- uh, Yes, in fact, that's actually correct. I mean, the the, the leafy greens, things like that, uh, we definitely can uh, continue on. Um, I've never seen it in, say, December, but we definitely can go uh, into late November. Um, I'm sure others with you know with little uh, what the the tube, you know, the, the short tube type houses, you oh, can yeah. definitely grow much longer. But the other issue that we have is that like as of December you wake up and it's dark and before you get home, it's dark. You're, you're lucky to get, I mean, you know this, right? You're lucky to get like the eight hours of daylight, which makes it very difficult to, to grow. You're, you're now, even so, further north than uh, we are here. So shorter days in the winter, but nice long days in the summer. I bet you're enjoying that. Oh yeah. I mean, end of June, uh, it's, it's dusk at, at 10, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, we could easily go off on corn here because uh, I have a particular distaste for the corn lobby and the industrialized corn uh, machine. Uh, but I, th I think we'd like to focus on, you know, why hemp? What is it that hemp is going to bring to, uh, well, where you're at? But also, what is it do you think that it can bring to really farmers as a whole? Well, let me tell you why I'm really enthusiastic about it. And and to start off, I'll say that my, my background is in, obviously, in agricultural production and horticulture and agronomy and, and the breeding side of things. And as I mentioned before, I kind of take the farmer's view in many cases. And uh, and you've you've mentioned corn and you and you've mentioned soybeans and we know that especially around me here those are the dominant rotations yeah some places are going to also grow sugar beets or potatoes and some wheat is thrown in but corn soy as you're going down the interstates is what you see throughout the midwest and that lack of diversity is is a problem uh, in agriculture in terms of the health of the soil. So if we focus on what's good for the soil so that we can sustain our agricultural production, then immediately we start talking about well, how do we increase the diversity so that we don't have one crop mining the heck out of the soil uh, and, and uh, exhausting it. So what can we do? And this is really what 
gets me so excited about working with hemp because as and I'm I know there are a lot of hemp advocates who say that hemp can do everything but and I'm I'm not really of that ilk but here's a situation that I think is true I think that hemp particularly for grain at the moment could become a crop that can break into that two crop rotation that corn soy bean rotation and add some diversity the same way that growers can choose maybe to choose wheat or maybe if they have uh, animals can also grow alfalfa for a third crop hemp can do this and and when i talk about this to farmers they immediately understand it's it's not like farmers only want to grow corn and soybeans uh, it is it is part of the f way the food system has developed so they're kind of locked into that scheme but if there were opportunities for more diversity then i believe they would take it and i think we can do that with hemp for grain um and, and i would agree with you and, I, and it, but before we go down that path one thing you mentioned sugar beets and oh, yeah. ju just as a side note uh what a lot of people don't realize is that there's a beet harvest and one of the common things that I think I mentioned this previously is that I'm in a community of nomads. Um, and when we travel, we travel on a school bus. Well, for full timers, it's not actually uncommon for full timers. They will work their way north for the beet harvest. And that is one of the ways they make money is that they go and they participate in the beet harvest and then they move on. I know it's completely an odd topic, but it kind of triggered from the mention of sugar beets. No, I, um, it's not an odd to, I have heard of this and I've read just from a sociological standpoint, it's really interesting to read some of the diaries or things that these folks have, have written and following the beet harvest. Yeah. Cause it's a big, beets are a big deal in Minnesota. We grow more beets in Minnesota than anywhere else in the U S so it's a thing here. Yeah. Um, now, Back, you mentioned farmers. Obviously, we're talking about agriculture, so there's farmers involved. And I've spoken with quite a few farmers myself. And quite a lot of them don't want to grow corn and soy. It's just that, as you mentioned, from a societal or a corporation or a food manufacturing standpoint, that's where the yield is. That's where they can actually continue to survive. Is that your experience or knowledge? Yeah, really. We talk about sustainable agriculture and one of the pieces of sustainability that often gets talked about is the environmental, but economic sustainability is really important too. You got to keep your farm going. Uh, and so grower, farmers, growers are going to look at, okay, they're, they're really good at penciling things out. Is this going to turn me enough of a profit that I can farm next year? Uh, and that often then when I was kind of saying locked into the crop, that's that's the way they know they can do it with the least risk, perhaps, uh, and and continue to farm. Well, and the continue the farm, I think, is key because um, obviously, from a societal perspective, um, you know, we as as humans get into a culture of something, right? Either it, it, nowadays, over the past few decades, you have a culture of tech. But obviously with farmers, you have a cultures of farmers. I've been on this farm for, you know, it's been in my family for seven generations, that kind of thing. Right. And it's, it's, it's what they know uh, and it's what they love. 
uh, and the farmers that I talk to is in the area that I am, we have a lot of uh, really micro farms, a lot of five acre farms, right? Homesteaders, farm stands, that kind of thing. And you talk to them and they just love it. But if you talk to them, you know, why don't you just grow X? It would make you more money. They're like, but that's not what farming is about. For me, farming is about producing food. So you get the CSAs where, you, you know, they're every, uh, let's say every week you pick up a box and the box has, you know, it's got, like you said, it's got your greens, it's got your eggs, it's got your bread and, and it supplements your, you know, your shopping for the week kind of thing. Um, and it, it's, I would encourage actually our listeners, if, if you're really just going to the store and picking up the box of dinner, uh, you need to understand that that box of dinner is likely not even food. Uh, you really should go if you have the opportunity and make sure that you're, you're buying real food. Um, that being said, uh, let's, let's, you know, kind of talk about the, 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 the donkey in the room or the elephant in the room, which is cannabis. Uh, now hemp is a cannabis variety, correct? Yeah, they're both uh, cannabis sativa. So same species. And it really comes down to at the at the core of it at the genetic level really it's uh one locus of one gene uh, that is going to depending on which alleles you have there is this going toward thc or is it going towards cbd <laughs> now there's a whole lot of difference in terms of plant the look of the plant that can also happen and people argue about that incessantly but if we just want to say which cannabinoid are you accumulating it's it's actually pretty simple Okay, so let's talk about that a little bit because um, in Washington State, the get high cannabis is legal. Uh, and also obviously medicinal cannabis, which uh, you know, for our listeners, there's quite a bit of difference between say uh, a one milligram THC, 40 milligram uh, CBD uh, intake versus say a 10 milligram THC, 10 milligram CBD intake. Uh, one of them being highly medicinal and anti-inflammatory and the other one will get you high. Um, but it, it, there's an interesting, one of the things that I've been reading recently is that I don't know who's doing this, but companies or individuals or horticulturalists are now breeding hemp, which is not the, 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 the hemp that we're talking about here, not the get high cannabis or the marijuana, um, where they are actually extracting THC from this industrialized hemp. Obviously, it's not as efficient as something that already has high THC. Um, but because it's not classified as, I mean, cannabis, technically, it's industrialized hemp, you're starting to see these supplements show up in like gas stations and things like this. Are you aware of that? Oh, well, uh, you foreshadowed something that I was going to tell you that you probably didn't know, but just... In the last month, starting at the beginning of July 1, uh, legislation in Minnesota went into effect that allowed the sale of essentially THC gummies and beverages, so long as that THC was extracted, as you just said, from, from hemp. So, you know, so your starting material has to be 0.3% THC or lower, uh, but this law allows then uh, the... Uh, 
uh, sale and purchase of, of now. And there are some interesting rules around it, like each serving size has to be five milligrams of THC or less, and you can't have more than, uh, I think it's 50 milligrams total per bag or something. Anyway, but, but yeah, exactly what you said has just become possible in Minnesota. And the laugh about it is, if you read the legislation, there are some people who think it was a mistake like they didn't get the wording quite right in the legislation. They were trying to do something to, about managing the Delta-8 situation uh, and through the wording created an opportunity for the, the Delta-9. So it's, some say it was intentional, some say it was a mistake. It's kind of just funny Minnesota stuff going on right now. Well, what was interesting, a, a quote that I heard from one of the legislators, I, I don't remember who it was, but they said, did we just legalize weed? <laughs> It's exactly true. Right. And the funny thing about this is, and, and <laughs> you know, humanity, humanity will always find a way. Okay. You know, that's why we're in the situation that we are now. In, instead of, for example, going back to 100% organic sustainable gardening where we're rotating crops um, in, a, in a more micro way. And let's be honest, that, that causes a, a surge in food prices, right? Because you can't do it on a mass scale. So I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying that the way we do it is quote unquote bad. I am saying though that everything has a cost. And so when you think about this cost, if we go all the way back in history, uh, you know, when uh, through prohibition and when they started really attacking cannabis and marijuana, and then as we go forward in time over the last 10 years, where many states have started to realize that, you know, why are we criminalizing something that is essentially harmless, right? It, it really is. Um, and so you have something like a Washington where you can get the medicinal benefits uh, and you don't even need a license anymore. You just have to be 21, right? If I can drink alcohol, I can get weed. But what's more interesting to me here is one of the problems with states that have legalized the, the let's call it the real marijuana, the real cannabis, is that because it's federally technically still illegal, banks won't touch you. Mm. So you have a situation where these companies are, are you, can't get, you can't get visa transactions, MasterCard transactions, anything like that. You have to deal in cash. Well, here's the interesting thing that Minnesota has done. Because Minnesota has now legalized the extraction from industrial hemp, which is federally legal, banks might be able to help Minnesota companies actually conduct business. Isn't that interesting? I hadn't uh, thought of that angle. Yeah. yeah so, so you might actually end up with, because the in Washington, I don't know about other states, but in Washington, you know, we, there's limitations as well, right? You can only have 100 milligrams per bag uh, if we're talking about edibles. Uh, and each edible can only have a maximum amount of 10 milligrams CBD, or not CBD, THC. The CBD can be much higher, but the THC uh, maxes out at 10. Well, in yours, in the Minnesota scenario, if it only maxes out at five, that's really not that big of a deal. You would just take two if you want 10. And you could end up in a situation where basically we legalized weed without legalizing weed and actually created an economic boom for small cultivators to be able to actually function in Minnesota because now 
the weed that everybody wants is actually coming, the THC is coming from industrialized hemp, which is federally legal, and thus they can work with getting a merchant account and things like that. Do you have a dispensary system in Washington state? Uh, we do. It, it, we don't call them dispensaries anymore. The dispensaries, it, when, when they first legalized the dis, uh, marijuana, it was medicinal only. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yes, you had to go get a card and you would go to a dispensary. Uh, but now they act, it's actually recreational and they, it's managed under the liquor board. So they act just like liquor stores. You, you can't for uh, and the rules apply across the board. So for example, in Washington, if you carry a concealed weapon, you are not allowed to take that weapon into a bar or a liquor store or a weed store because yeah. it's under the same regulations. Got it. Um, and you have to be 21 to enter. And they do, they check your ID. The moment you step in, you, I mean, within three feet, they're like, may I see your ID? Um, so no, they're more like stores now, but yes, we used to have a dispensary system. Well, one of the reasons I asked is that the legislation in Minnesota was, uh, was absent uh, any sort of regulation around the businesses, really. It was more about the labeling and so on. Uh, and so, uh, first of all, you, you can buy this at a 7-Eleven or a, or a gas station, for that matter, as well as a store that specializes in, in hemp, for instance. And the other thing was there was no mention of additional taxation or particular taxation of this. So that's, that's another sort of indication that something was unusual about this bill yeah you, because most, politicians usually find ways to add taxes no you're absolutely right i find, i mean <laughs> one of the arguments actually for legalizing cannabis is it's twofold one is that you can end up in a scenario or a situation with where you understand the quality of the cannabis that you're receiving because it's under regulation and two you can tax it yeah. <laughs> right. You can make all this money off of it and it's largely harmless. Right. I, I'm surprised that Minnesota overlooked that that ability to, you know, fund schools, I guess. <laughs> well, wa watch what happens, though, in in fall of 22 when they come back. I'm sure. Uh, well, I don't think this will be repealed just looking at the politics in the state, but I'm sure that they will change some of these regulations, including the taxation and probably also the availability. Interestingly enough, I, without getting too political, I, I actually appreciate consumption taxes. Uh, a lot of people think of them as like sin taxes, but I don't actually agree with that because, it, it, you know, if you don't want to pay the tax, don't buy the product, right? It, it, whereas with say an income tax, they're taking money from you no matter what. So I, I think it would benefit Minnesota, especially like you said, when you come back in the fall. I mean, think about it because the, it's, it's you know, one, get it out of 7-Elevens and stuff. It's too easy to accidentally sell to a minor, you know, things like that. Um, but if you regulate it properly, like liquor, uh, there's a lot of money to be had for doing good without actually adversely affecting the people who are consuming the product, I guess. Yeah, I think bottom line, what it's going to do is hasten the adoption of a recre uh, recreational system. Here, something that looked like it was pretty far off politically, but suddenly just just to get things adjusted correctly, it wouldn't surprise me if in the next few years uh, it'll happen. Yeah, I, I, and really I, I, what's the end result, right, is gonna be for every, and I think it's like 27 states or something right now, 
the end result is that the federal government is just going to throw up their hands. Right. And then we're going to start seeing a lot of progress. We're going to start seeing, uh, you know, the higher concentrated medicinal benefits through science. And we're going to start seeing uh, all kind, you know, all kinds of things that you can do with it. But let's get a little bit back here on, um, it, it, we're already moving pretty far along here. Uh, and I want to make sure that we educate our people, our, our listeners, because a lot of people really don't understand the difference, right? It, it, hemp is weed, weed is hemp. Wait, am I, can I get high from hemp? <laughs> that type of stuff, which we just discussed. Yes, you actually can, but that's, um, what is, you know, industrial hemp or ditch weed or naturalized hemp? What are these things that, that we have here that we hear about? Sure. So we, industrial, uh, industrial hemp has a, a legal definition. And I think, although I haven't looked at them all, it's the same in every state and it's the same federally. And that is 0.3%. The material the, that, uh, that you're growing needs to be 0.3% THC or lower. And there's a, a testing system, there's a, a licensing system for growing it. Uh, and there is a testing requirement for the material so that the material you're growing as industrial hemp can actually be certified so that you have a, a document that says, yes, Tom, what you grew in your field is in fact, according to the state of Minnesota, industrial hemp. And that's required for selling it. So there, it is, it is a, a regulated system uh, and the testing is super important to the point of them saying, and here is how you test. Here's how you walk through the field and you're testing. Here's the part of the plant you take, how you handle and so on. So it's all very, uh, it's more tightly regulated than the other crops I've been working with, that's for sure. Uh, so that is the industrial hemp side of things. Uh, you mentioned uh, ditch weed and maybe we'll talk more about that later. It is the, that's the starting material that I work with in my own breeding program by choice. Uh, for reasons we can talk about later, but ditchweed, in fact, is is uh, industrial hemp from another era, if you will, because uh, with the in in the history of hemp, their hemp has been grown since settlement, right on through in Minnesota to the to the 1940s, maybe you know, probably the end of the 1940s, and the last big crop was for the World War II effort when uh, fiber was grown. And many people know that the um, hemp for victory sort of idea was a big deal in the, in the Midwest. But the thing about hemp is that it, if you grow it in a place, uh, the seeds will shatter. And that means they, they, they jump off, the, they fall off the plant uh, and are either eaten by birds or are, are spread by just the crop moving around. And it very easily uh, what's called naturalizes or grows by itself in areas so long as you leave it alone. If there's kind of a disturbed area, something's maybe plowed up and then people walk away from it for a little while, uh, it's not unusual for hemp to grow. And so this crop that ended in 1945, uh, its descendants continue to grow to this day in, in uh, rural Minnesota and not so rural Minnesota as well. And that's the ditch wheat, but it traces back to that, those old hemp crops that have been grown around areas forever. Well, it's interesting that you bring up the fiber 
portion of this uh, in the 40s. Um, for those that, in fact, I'm wearing a hemp shirt right now. Um, but it was it was more for cordage, right? For ropes and, and things like that, or were they using it for other things? Yeah, really, the, 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 certainly the uh, military interest was for coarser fiber, as you say, for, for rope. Uh, also for things as esoteric as sewing sews on military boot soles on min military boots, for instance, because it made a very tough thread. And that was the nature of the fiber that came off uh, those plants. Just like other fibers, there are there are types of hemp that result in really fine fiber for textiles, like what, perhaps what you're wearing. Uh, and then there's there are other fiber types that are a, a little bit more coarse and <laughs> and the material that that is uh, the naturalized stuff or the feral stuff or the ditchweed those are all synonyms uh, would be the coarser stuff I believe. Okay, so ditchweed and naturalized hemp the, are the yeah. same thing. Yeah, and a lot of people call it. You might hear me calling it feral hemp just because that's the word we use around our program. But some some people don't like that word because it sounds more like cats than uh, the plant. But. <laughs> well, I mean, wild, right? <laughs> we're talking about wild hemp. Yes. Um, we're talking about we go out on a hike and there's hemp. That's wild hemp. Um, okay, fair enough. Um, now, you're working on modifying or maybe not, not modifying is the wrong word because when you start talking about genetic modification, people get really twitchy. You're working on optimizing the genes for hemp to be able to produce something. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I'm focused as, uh, I'm really focused on the grain side of things uh, because of my my belief that it can make a difference, you know, in the, in the, agriculture and food system here in the in the Midwest. So what am I focusing on? I'm focusing on things for things like dense inflorescences. That doesn't sound unlike a drug type crop either, does it? But no. <laughs> dense inflorescences for a different reason. <laughs> so that so that we get a lot of seeds. Uh, so we get a really high seed seed yield. I'm also interested in things that have lots of branches uh, so that we can maximize the number of flowers uh, on a plant and a certain height so though so i have kind of this is called an idiotype in breeding id well anyway i won't spell it on the fly but idiotype so i have an idea of what an ideal plant would look like and and that is uh, as i mentioned branchy lots of dense inflorescences a certain height something around maybe six to eight feet tall something that's manageable in a field by existing uh uh, equipment that farmers probably have for growing corn, for instance, or or even soybeans, uh, and and uh, something something else that I'm really interested in working on is what's in those seeds. So without belaboring this piece, when maybe we talk about it later, there are three components to seeds that are really important, like using hemp, hemp grain for for hemp hearts or something like that is only going to have so much of a market. And so that's not going to reshape Minnesota agriculture. But if we start looking at what is in that seed in the same way we might look at what's in the corn seed or what's in the soybean seed and how can we use that? If we do that with hemp, we find that there's a really high, high quality cooking oil uh, in hemp. Uh, there is a really high quality protein 
uh, in the hemp that can be isolated, has a really nice color, has really good functionality, and there are there are additional uh, uh, fiber materials that, that are uh, also involved. And, and so these are the three things, the carbs, the, the protein and the oil that can be extracted from the seed. That, I think, if we can create a demand for that in our food system, in food formulations, that's the sort of thing that can explode the demand for the crop and result. If there's that demand there, we've talked about economic sustainability for farmers. It's that demand that's going to drive price and make it a crop that farmers are going to want to grow. So that's interesting. So I, I want to explore this a little bit more, but I, I want to touch on this just because some of our listeners are going to be like, well, what about, and what about textiles? I mean, I get that your primary goal, we understand that you're trying to help the farmers in Minnesota and that makes sense. And I'm not arguing that, but why not textiles? Because there's certainly a demand for uh, nice clothing, for durable clothing, for you know, whatever you want to call it. Uh, insulation is a good example. Uh, you know, organic wool has become a big thing for insulation lately. So why not that? Oh, absolutely. Really good question. And I'll tell you why. And again, it's this, this is Tom talking and there are going to be absolutely advocates for fiber. And, and frankly, I'm an advocate for fiber too. But if I look at this pragmatically about what is likely to drive demand initially, then, then fiber is a tough sell because it requires infrastructure that we don't have, like or that is that is uh, not common. Let me say it that way. Not that it doesn't exist. It's just that it doesn't exist at the level that we need it to to really get into the fiber side of things. So, uh, when you or, say what, we, who's we? I, I'm. I guess I'm taking a look at the we, the agricultural system writ large. So in everything the United from, States? Yeah, yes, let me say in the United States. And I'll, I'll maybe even say in the upper Midwest, but I think this actually applies pretty broadly. So for instance, uh, it starts with the farmer. How does a farmer harvest that fiber crop? Uh, it's a tough, it's, it's, it's an unusual thing to harvest. Now you can take a sickle mower and drop it down, but then there's this stage called redding which essentially is rotting, where you you let the cut down hemp rot for a little while so the fiber is easier to extract. And then how do you actually pull the fibers, this, this part that's called, well, it depends whether you call it breaking or scutching, it's, it's taking the fibers off of the, the central part of the stem, the cortex, because the fiber is wrapped around this solid core of practically cellulose. So you pull that fiber off, uh, you need to do that step, and then you need to refine it. There are a lot of steps that are involved in getting that from the coarse fiber to being a fiber you can actually use. And that infrastructure has been lost in the US. It was here. Uh, but now it's lost. And, and I also should mention that a lot of fiber back in the day uh, in the US was only economically possible because of slave labor. The, uh, this, there's a, a, a part of the uh, process called breaking where you're extracting the fiber from the, the, the stem that you've cut down. And it's literally backbreaking work. And that was done uh, 
by by people, uh, and it was often done in in the in areas that that had slave labor. That's actually who did it. So now, if you fast forward. Uh, of course, it needs to be done mechanically, but we don't have that mechanical prowess uh, in enough quantity to to say tomorrow we're going to start growing fiber hemp and we're going to grow a lot of it. It's something that needs to evolve. It will because of the sort of interest that you've expressed in these products, but it's not there yet. So we, when we think about this, what we're really talking about um, are countries like China where textiles are part of their economic yeah. uh, infrastructure now. Whereas with us, our economic infrastructure has moved in a different direction over time. Also in Europe, uh, it, uh, Italy and France have grown fiber for a long time. Italy makes particularly good fine fiber, but you also see some, some work in the Netherlands. And when I take a look at agricultural implements, machinery that's being developed to do this fiber sort of stuff uh, you can kind of hunt around in some of the european websites and you see some really cool things being developed so it's not like it won't happen it's just right. that it's not in it's not out in the barn yet you know people can't use it here well i i think it's interesting and the reason i brought up china um specifically was because they have access to a lot of something that for this process uh, I could argue is better than hemp and that's bamboo ah. because bamboo is, it doesn't, it just keeps growing, right? You chop it off 90 days later, you can chop it again. And 90 days later, you can chop it again. It, it, it's, and you can use it as uh, you know, depending on what you're doing with it. Not only can you use it for textiles, but you can use it for construction materials and things like that. Um, so I found that kind of interesting as we talk about the sustainability of hemp versus uh specifically for china versus something they already have that's there right um that being said so you are optimizing these seeds for agriculture which i think is great in fact uh you had sent a, an email to Lindsay with some in-depth information Lindsay's our producer um and i read that email and uh, in honor of this, uh, this episode, I actually went and immediately bought uh, three pounds of hemp flour. <laughs> uh, and I did that for a reason. I actually, I've, I've had hemp hearts in the fridge and stuff in the past, but I did it for a reason because what popped in my head is we're talking about corn and we're talking about soy. Um, and we want to get a crop rotation. But then if we're talking about flour, you're talking about wheat. And it was curious to me what kind of properties would be required to modify? Because obviously, I mean, wheat is the flower of choice for, you know, 98% of whatever you do. Um, but obviously hemp is going to be gluten-free. And I wonder if there is what the prop protein properties and things like that, you know, like what kind of bread would you get out of hemp flour? Um, do you think that there's a, a, a possible or an opportunity there for say wheat farmers to, uh, be able to recycle or not recycle or, you know, rejuvenate their soil as well by introducing something like a hemp for flour and grain? You know, I, did you try using the hemp flour? Not, not yet. I literally, I ordered it like half an hour ago. I'm, I'm going to try it this week. When I yeah. So, well, you hit on the, the, uh, the part that has my head spinning and that is the gluten. 
So, uh, of course, when you bake bread, you need something that's trapping the CO2 that's evolving from the yeast. And it's the, it's the elastic gluten type proteins that capture that in wheat. And right. we don't have that. And so in, in uh, hemp, it's just not part of it. And it's not something that I would select for because uh, there, there are some things that you select for that you can change that make sense to me and others that you don't like. If you have a crop like wheat, that's great as far as gluten, then use wheat. Uh, I say the same thing when it comes to trying to improve the amino acid balance of corn or soybeans so they're more complete proteins. It's just like, just eat them together and you're okay. So so I like working with, I, I, maybe it's the easy way out, but I wouldn't adjust, I wouldn't try to adjust hemp to become a bread making flour, but you could obviously use it as an, as an additional component if it brought something interesting, if it brought a flavor to a bread product or it gave it a property, uh, like in a, 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 I'm thinking of a pastry or a donut, maybe it has a property there that would give it a really cool texture or something, and then I would do that. But more of what I'm thinking of for use of grain is if you take a look at a label and it says in there that there is a, a high uh, uh, soybean protein concentrate or soybean protein isolate is in there to improve. So like, I, I don't know, I should probably pull a energy bar out of my briefcase here. And I bet it says something like that. Or it might say whey protein as an isolate. And if instead we could show that hemp protein isolate has the same or better functionality. And by functionality, I mean, what else does it do in the product besides just having protein? Uh, what does it do in terms of texture? How does it combine with other materials? Is it soluble in water? Is it soluble in alcohol, high pH, low pH? All those things are things food scientists think about very deeply. And so we have these folks testing our, our hemp and telling us, you know, in these sort of products, it could really work. It could, it could work in these sort of sport drinks or not in others. And suddenly, this door has opened to an immediately large demand. So if I were to say we could substitute soybean protein isolate uh, with hemp protein isolate, and it would have the same function and qualities in a product, think of the think of the demand. I'm that's hyperbole. Uh, I think it would it would result in a great deal of demand for the product, and that's more where I'm going as far as what you do with the grain. No, I would agree. And, and you're right. So one of the things that a lot of food advocates uh, talk about is diversification, right? Um, because the more you consume of a particular product, I mean, I, a lot of people just don't really understand that, um, you know, chances are if you bought it at the store and it's not produce, you're going to get corn or soy in it. Right. right. That's, that's, right. That, that's the deal, right? <laughs> your protein bar is a perfect example, but it's not just protein bars, even your meat, right? Because mass, mass production cow is going to have soy and corn in it. <laughs> they are corn and soybean carrier. Exactly. They're built from corn and soy. <laughs> no, that's exactly, that is exactly right. And, and you'll get, you'll get an organic farmer some more. Well, but they also use leftover candy. It's like, what do you think candy's made out of? Corn and soy. <laughs> Right. So 
um, from that. So a shout out to the grass fed beef growers. <laughs> that's exactly right. A shout out to the grass fed beef growers. In fact, I mean, our family is privileged enough to be able to, we don't buy meat from the store. We, we buy whole pigs. We buy whole cows from local homesteaders. Um, and it, the quality and the, the flavor, I mean, everything about it is just better. Um, that being said, um, going back to the diversification. So this diversification will cause two things. One is better health. So if, if we're looking at it from a perspective, not, not getting on a soapbox, but just saying this is going to produce healthier families. That's very important. But let's also be honest, our society, as I'm talking about the mob, the entire society, I'm not talking about you personally or myself personally or whatever, our society cares more about the economic capabilities of X than the health of X. So what in X being hemp. So if you end up, in, if you're successful, what you've done is not only you have vastly improved the quality of soil, but you've also vastly improved economic outlook based on these crops. And the side effect of these two things is you vastly improved food and thus nutrient diversification for our people. Is that accurate? It sounds like a win-win to me, doesn't it? It, it does. It, it absolutely does. Um, which, of course, this is why you're working on it, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's, so, that's, yeah, I'm sticking by that. You know, I, that is kind of how I'm thinking about it. It just seems like it can, could really fit together. But we do need to be able to find that demand. What's going to drive the demand? Because as you said, right, so much revolves around the economics of this thing. That, that's right. And we have other challenges, though. So because of prohibition and narcotics regulations, and frankly, without getting conspiratorial, I, I kind of believe the government has an economic interest uh, in keeping uh, hemp and cannabis under tight control. Um, but beyond that, because of those regulations, uh, we have a problem with the diversification of the seeds, right? Or, the, or having a way, well, for example, a USDA, say, seed bank or something like that. We have a problem, especially if we're thinking about breeding and improving crops, we have a problem in accessing materials that we can breed with. And, you know, if you, if you, if you haven't been involved in breeding, it's a it's a piece of the puzzle that you just may not have thought about. But you need diversity in in order to breed something better. And the classic way of doing breeding is you take something that's pretty good, a variety that's pretty good. It doesn't matter what the crop is, and uh, you know there's a flaw in it. It might have some sort of a, a disease susceptibility. And you find a, a, another version of that same species so that it can intercross that has the resistance, but, but maybe it doesn't have good commercial quality. Maybe it tastes terrible or whatever, but, but it has the resistance. Now you've got the diversity you need to do the cross between them and select for the best of both. 
which is all of that great quality the original variety has, but now it also has the resistance. So you need that sort of diversity. Well, we're missing the diversity side of this because of the prohibition that you mentioned. Uh, the seed banks that we have for all the other crops, whether it's USDA seed banks or whether it's university breeders like me who keep small seed banks that we work with, or whether it's private individuals have, have this sort of diversity around that they can use to, to make the crosses. Well, that's just not available uh, in cannabis. Uh, so, go ahead. Well, and now that's interesting to me. You said in cannabis. So switching back to, well, I, I understand that for you, hemp is really fun. But for people that understand <laughs> cannabis as a general rule, there's a different kind of fun. Um, <laughs> and the you said there's not enough diversification. Well, you if you walk into a cannabis store in Washington, there is literally hundreds of different strains, and they all vary between sativa and indica, and they all have different properties among them that will cause different types of things to happen. Uh, you know, a, a good example is, uh, you know, your low THC, high CBD strains that people use for inflammation, uh, or they use them to make um, tinctures, uh, because to get the concentration high enough to help manage their pain or their epilepsy or whatever. Isn't that kind of, I mean, from a hemp perspective, but isn't that what we're kind of talking about those different strains that have been cultivated yeah. to produce X? Right, yes. And, uh, <laughs> When I said cannabis uh, earlier, I immediately thought, yeah, but the 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 high THC situation is that's a different kettle of fish that has been. And and even though that was being done clandestinely for an awful long period of time, there was an effort to bring in diversity. And there was a lot of effort in trying to put together interesting combinations and kind of see what happened and try to figure out some general rules about what goes with what. And as a result, we get what you see in a dispensary. We have over here your sativas, we have over here your indicas, and here we have your hybrids. And those are not so much botanical taxonomic categories, although some would say leaf sizes or whatever, but but it's really about the effect of the plant, as far as I can tell. Uh, uh, pharmacologically on on what sort of uh, an effect you want so so yeah that sort of that sort of diversity but when it comes down to uh, if we're trying to improve industrial hemp uh, that's only in its infancy in trying to put together uh, the that sort of diversity and those sort of resources so it, it and I want to go down this path a little bit, but just for our listeners who don't know, it boils down to this. Sativa makes you think, indica makes you eat. <laughs> okay, that's, that's what it boils down to. Um, it, it's absolutely true. Sativa makes you think, indica makes you eat. Um, okay, so, uh, but beyond that, so let, let's say the government actually does something good for once and says, you know what? This is ridiculous. We're fighting the losing battle. We finally realized we're fighting the losing battle. So instead of continuing to fight a losing battle, we're going to pull out and 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 set these regulations and have go forth and be a happy population. And uh, TH, high THC cannabis is now legal based on certain specifics, and researchers have full access to it. Uh, and industrialized hemp is you know it's got its same classification. 
at that point, would that actually benefit your research? Would you be able to say, okay, I realize that if I consume this as it sits now, uh, I'm going to eat that entire chocolate cake, but there is a property within this particular strain of this high THC strain that allows me to have a longer growing season. Maybe it's more uh, cold tolerant or something. Is, is that something that would benefit you and your research? It, it might, but, but I, I, there might be an easier way to do some of those things. And the reason that I pause, it isn't the diversity at heavens. There's a lot of diversity, uh, a lot of difference between the, the high THC materials and the, uh, and the industrial hemp uh, materials by and large. And part of that is, is from where it came from, for instance. So, so, so a lot of the industrial hemp stuff, like it all kind of originated in, in Asia and some say maybe more Northern China, some say more Central Asia, but, but that's kind of where things started. But if you take a look at the history of how it spread and the different uses, the, the spread of, of cannabis kind of to the North and Westerly into Europe, that was the material that was focused more on domestication for use in fiber. And the stuff that moved more South especially getting down toward the Indian subcontinent, that domestication was more for medicinal and drug use. So we get these two big differences that go way back in history in terms of, uh, of their use. And that drives the nature, sort of the genetics of the, of the plant. So if we take a look at uh, industrial hemp now and compare that to what's going on with the high cannabinoid THC sort of stuff. Wow, they're really different. They're very diverse. And that goes way back to to their origins. The problem for me in using that, let's say it becomes in suddenly legal, would I want to actually make crosses with it to increase the diversity? It might be a problem for me because I'd be introducing some growth characteristics that I that I really probably don't want. Uh, in industrial hemp situation. When you think of industrial hemp being grown, for instance, out in the field, it's grown at very high populations. It's not grown on four by four centers the way CBD or THC hemp might be grown in the field. It's grown like corn uh, at, at very higher populations, in fact, very high populations. And that takes a different sort of plant uh, architecturally. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I probably, I, I might, because of the reason that you said, want to try to pick off some particular characteristics of the seeds, but uh, that might be more diversity than I would care to chew on, to tell you the truth. Okay, that's fair. So let, let's talk about, um, so not to state the obvious, but the prob one of the problems that we're trying to solve with industrialized hemp for food is that when you grow a single crop or you don't or only two crops it adversely and you do this every year it can adversely affect the quality of the soil um now this is when we add a third crop for example industrialized hemp we are further diversifying the nutrients that the soil requires and how it can produce a better product overall but i have you mentioned something about um, hemp that is, I'm curious how this would be handled. So I have, let's say a thousand acres, just as an example, and I grow corn 
and I grow in, in one season, then I grow soy in one season. And now I'm growing hemp in one season. And we have figured out some of the problems. There's now an economic demand. It no longer has to be a boutique farm. Uh, the nutrition profile is great. Uh, it's good for say pasta, but not bread. Okay, just as an example. Um, you mentioned that one of the things that happens with hemp is that although it is not a perennial, uh, meaning it will not come back every year, the same plant won't come back every year. When it matures and when it goes to reproduction, it, the seeds will burst. They will jump from the plant, land in the dirt, and if they're left alone, they will grow. One of the interesting things about wheat is, as I understand it, there is a similar problem, but if you let it get too far, but what a lot of people, there's some, there's a group of scientists now that are suspecting that the increase of uh, celiac disease and gluten intolerance is due to the fact that many farmers will pre-kill their crop with Roundup uh, in an effort to uh, make the drying process more efficient to get it to market. So th there's a suspect, there, it's not, I'm not disparaging any product. I'm just saying that there is a suspicion there from a group of scientists that suggests that this is a problem we're causing uh, through chemicals. How does the diversification, adding hemp to the corn and soy, how do we deal with that problem? Because I assume that there's a similar problem with these other products, right? Yeah, so the, the <clears throat> purpose of using Roundup or some other chemical to burn down that crop at the end of the season is try to get uniform maturity so that harvest, you so you can harvest. Otherwise, you, you might have some plants that are, are still too high moisture, too green, the, the seed's not mature, or other stuff that's ready to mature and it's going to shatter. So get everything's evened out so that uh, becomes a much more efficient harvest. But as you said, you're using chemistry on, on, on these crops. This is a pretty common thing to do in crops. You don't do it in corn, uh, really. Uh, I, I've never heard of instances, maybe some people do it, but it's not a common practice. But it would be a practice that might be used in other crops to try to even things up. And that often happens when you have a crop that flowers uh, over a long period of time, because you can imagine if, if uh, the, the grain that's produced from the first flowers, it's going to mature the first and grain from the last flowers is going to mature last. And if that last flower came a month later, you know, you're, you're twiddling your thumbs waiting for that stuff to get uh, mature. And so you might use uh, some sort of chemistry in order to burn it down. Now, the reason I bring all that up is uh, hemp is the poster child for long flowering period. So uh, it, it, hemp, uh, females are starting to flower roughly now in Minnesota, in my fields. And those things are gonna keep flowering right into late August. That's a real, that's six weeks of flowering. Uh, so that means you have many different maturities uh, on that plant and you are waiting for things to get mature. And as a result, the, the seeds, it's usually you get the earliest stuff toward the bottom. Those seeds are shattering uh, and are lying on the ground or are lost to me as I'm waiting for the other seed to, to come. So uh, it is possible that one might in future years uh, have agronomists saying, well, should we use something to hasten maturity? 
uh, in that way. But it's not something that would happen now. And that's because of a, a regulatory uh, situation where you really can only use chemistry, you're only supposed to use chemistry, that has been tested and is approved and on the label of that product for particular crops. So it would have to say, here's how you use it on hemp, right on the, on the let's, you mentioned Roundup, on the Roundup label. Well, there are no chemistries that I know of that are uh, on the, that where hemp is on the label. So right now you can't use anything, and that means that from that supposedly there's there's no uh, chemicals that are used in in hemp production. Uh, in many, a lot of times you use this chemistry, <clears throat> like you mentioned Roundup, and so there's Roundup ready corn, Roundup ready soybeans. It's used to control weeds, but one of the really cool things about hemp that you know, advocates have long said you don't need to use any herbicides in in, in uh, hemp. It's kind of true because if you grow it at a tight spacing, it grows so darn fast this time of year uh, that it it smothers out weeds really well. It becomes so its I, own cover crop. It is amazing that way. I, I I just can't tell you how even after several years of growing this crop, this time of years, I'm just amazed at how fast it grows from being one foot tall to being over my head. It's just literally a couple of weeks. So, okay, this is going to be a bad pun dad joke kind of situation, but you could actually say it grows like a weed. Oh, God, does it ever? Yes. <laughs> All right. So, <clears throat> what is what's the bait what kind of infrastructure do we not have i mean that we need in order to make industrialized hemp uh and, and let's forget textiles let's talk about for for solving your problem yeah. how you know how do we what is the farmers need you mentioned that you're one of the things that you're trying to do is cultivate a strain that allows it to grow in a way where we could either a reuse existing infrastructure or b with as little modification as possible what are we talking about there? Are we talking like hay balers or what? Well, when it comes to grain production, I'll start with that. And I will mention fiber a, a bit, but um, when it comes to grain production, the beauty of grain production from hemp is that that infrastructure is pretty well in place now, at both at the farm level and also at the, uh, at the receiving, at the grain elevator level because it's it's just a grain and so you can deal with it like other grains so looking at farmers around the midwest anyway unless they're doing specialty crops or hort stuff or something like that if they're corn soybean growers they they have a combine uh, and they have a soybean header and they have a corn header so the header is the part on the front that gathers up the crop correctly and feeds it into the combine the combine is where the seed is threshed free of the, the rest of the residue. So you have to have a different header for different crops. Well, uh, you could use, and it is being done, where a grain header, like a, a, something you'd use for wheat. Oh, that's the classic thing that your, your listeners, when they think of that, that sort of rotating, it's called a reel, the rotating part in front that's feeding the grain, the amber waves of grain. And you could use one of those. You just pick it up. These are all on hydraulic uh, lifters and you could lift up that head. So it's running maybe uh, three, four feet off the ground where the seeds are in hemp and take it through the field and cut that right off 
uh, and uh, feed it into the combine. And there you go. Without even really buying any new equipment, uh, you can harvest this crop. So the so my contention is much of the infrastructure that uh, is uh, currently on farm can be used for the grain crop. There is something you have to beef it up. It's a tough crop, right? We already mentioned that it has tough fibers in it. And so uh, literally you have to make sure you have a good fire extinguisher on your combine because uh, you, that cordage can wrap around things that move and that will create heat and it can create fires if you're not careful. I mean, I, I don't want to scare people, but it's, it, yeah, <laughs> isn't that something else? So your combine can catch on fire, not a good thing for a million dollar piece of equipment. So, so um, one, of your, one of your things you have to have is a good fire extinguisher. The other uh, thing though, you have to kind of beef up some of the systems because it's not wheat that you're cutting, it's it's hemp which is pretty tough so uh but in terms of handling the grain now you take that grain and you need to make sure that it's at the right moisture level well farmers have grain dryers so you can use the same sort of grain dryer this you can use the same belts for conveyance so the stuff that's on the farm is is can be used for this crop now you could take it to the grain elevator and assume that they they uh they receive that crop the grain crop same thing for them they can store it the same way they can move it the same way and it just becomes one more specialty grain which is kind of cool so the infrastructure i would contend is if if not completely in place that it's pretty darn close and that's really important for whether you can grow a new crop in an area like if i if we were to say minnesota can grow peanuts so let's grow peanuts well there's there's the infrastructure is not here for harvesting peanuts from under the ground or for drying them correctly or let alone uh, doing doing you know the fancier roasting or whatever so so uh you need to have a crop that fits the infrastructure and on the grain side i would contend that it does pretty well uh take some expertise i'm not minimizing the fact that a grower needs to learn some new tricks but it's it's within the realm of reason, I would believe. With fiber, we touched on this before. Uh, you know, we we don't grow much fiber. Some people grow uh, flax for fiber, uh, and that would maybe be the closest thing in the Upper Midwest uh, to what hemp would be like. But that's a real specialty thing, and yeah, the infrastructure. I mean, you'd be in you'd be a maverick working with with uh, hemp for fiber right now. You're I, I'm not saying you're completely on your own because there are other people who are interested in doing it, but it, it would be kind of an individual effort. Okay, so, you know, we'll start wrapping this up here, but for our listeners who are not agriculturally inclined, can you, can you take a moment and explain why this is going to help the soil? What is the problem that's being solved beyond, you know, we've talked about the diversification of of nutrition and things like that, but from an actual growing perspective, can, can you help us understand that a little bit? Yeah, I'll give you three things. Uh, one uh, is that each type of crop has a different type of nutrient demand. So if you continue to sow the show, uh, grow the same crop, then you're continuing to mine the same nutrients at the same quant from, from the soil. And over time, it's going to be depleted uh, unless you end up replacing it with 
for instance, synthetic fertilizers. And so, so you, uh, so there's a continuous demand for the same thing from the soil. If you don't change your crop, if you change your crop, uh, now you have diversified what those demands are. All the crops are going to, it's not hugely different, but it, it can be different enough that diversification alone can be a benefit in terms of the nutrient demands on the soil. The second thing is we're learning more and more about the biology of the soil and what's going on there. And different crops uh, support different microbiomes in the soil. Uh, and so if you can diversify the crop you're growing, you're going to diversify the microbiome. And that helps. The more diversity you have uh, in the soil, the greater the sustainability of that soil as well. So we've got, we've got the nutrient demand, we've got the microbiology. I'll throw in uh, a, another one in that when we're taking a look at uh, building soil health, we're also looking at what the residues are for the crop. Uh, what we're taking the grain away from the field, but we're leaving a lot of stuff in the field that gets plowed back in as organic matter. That breaks down and helps provide nutrition for subsequent crops. If we're always growing the same crop, then we're putting the same organic matter uh, back in, and it's not kind of a diverse organic matter. Like if it's corn, for instance, if we're putting, if we're growing soy, uh, we're putting back organic matter that probably has a higher nitrogen content, for instance, than the, the corn stover that's being plowed back in. The same sort of thing could happen with hemp. I'm not familiar enough with the differences in corn, soy, and hemp uh, to be able to tell you exactly what the differences are in what's being returned to the soil, but I'm confident enough to say they are going to be different and that diversity can help. And I will give you a bonus fourth one, which is something we're working on. Uh, and that is the root systems of these crops differ quite a bit. Uh, how, how deep they go, for instance, how, how fibrous they are, uh, uh, can really make a difference. And if you think three-dimensionally in the soil, where those roots are placed and what they do is going to differ by crop. And what has been reported about hemp is it has a very deep and extensive root system. And one of the things that we are starting to evaluate is the ability of hemp, compared to corn, for instance, to suck up some of the nutrients that are problems in our groundwater, in particular nitrate. So nitrate moving into groundwater is a big problem. It's a problem for drinking water. It's also a problem in getting into our water systems going down the Mississippi River and polluting the Gulf of Mexico. So we're interested in whether hemp, hemp might remediate some of the uh, nitrate that's leaching through the soil profile. So that's an another benefit of having some diversity of agriculture. Okay, so now that we have our next seven episodes. Yeah, did, you, um, <laughs> did I just sound like I was giving a lecture there? No, no, not I, at I all. I flipped I, into <laughs> professor mode. <laughs> um, no, actually, this is fascinating to me because I'm, I'm going to state something here uh, that seems obvious, but it's not. So you said we're just now learning about like microbes and stuff and soil and, and so on and so forth. Now, I agree with you. I, I think that our science and our place in humanity at this point, we are just now, let's say, identifying 
the various things that need to happen to truly have, say, healthy soil, for example. Um, but couldn't we also be kind of honest and say, sure, 500 years ago, <laughs> we didn't know the name of it, but it was pretty obvious that we had to do this, this crop <laughs> rotation and things yeah. like that. Isn't that, isn't that true? Well, you know what, my... I immediately started thinking about prairie soils because of where I am. Right. So tall grass prairies around right. this part of Minnesota, and those are not monocultures <laughs> and they resulted they're, they're tremendously diverse. Uh, and they resulted in these fabulous soils that we're still mining, unfortunately today, but yeah, you can right. It was So, so basically obvious. what we're doing now, what you and I are talking about right now is trying to fix something fix a problem that we as industrialized society created that was solved pre-industrialized society. Yeah, that's true. You know, JD, it's this, it's this, it's this tension we have. We want to grow food or other materials, but let's say food, because you and I both appreciate that. Uh, we're trying to grow food from this field. So how do we do that? How do we meet this social this need of the population, but try to try to do it in a way that mimics as best we can some of those principles that you were just talking about that that we learned, for instance, from prairie soils. So it's 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 tough, right? It, it, it's it's just what we're trying to do is try to find that correct balance and that balance moves. But the more we know, I think the smarter we can do it. Well, and that's the end game, right? Is that we are trying to create the highly, the highest efficiency. And when we say efficiency, we're talking about nutrient density. We're also talking about yield and we're talking about economic viability. Um, for things that, you know, 500 years ago, we didn't have 8 billion people on the planet, right? So you were able to provide for those things at a much smaller scale. It's always easier to do at a smaller scale. Would you agree with that? It is easier to do at a smaller scale. Yeah. Yeah. And it's easier to do when you have, I don't know, I don't know quite how to say this, more, more people touching the land in a way, you know, more density of uh, intensity of agriculture in the sense of, of humans being involved. And we're really going the other way uh, now, so that especially with more mechanized agriculture, it's fewer touches on, on the ground. Uh, people watching, more less eyes on the land. And, and somehow I think that has an impact too. I think you're right. Um, and I'm going to close with this. Um, what you just said, the people, less people touching the ground. Um, there has been studies that have shown, for example, um, for all the benefits of high density housing that you can, that or there are benefits to high density housing. Um, the closer you, the, the more you live in high density housing, as well as the closer you live to freeways, the higher chances you have of getting cancer. Um, my mother, who I love and adore and respect deeply, does not understand, does for whatever reason, she doesn't understand the idea of going to a farm and purchasing my cow or purchasing my pig. Meat comes from the store for her. 
And why I bring that up is that as humans, as a species, we're actually not designed for that, right? Genetically speaking, I mean, they've shown time and time again that one of the best uh, 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 warriors for depression is the outdoors because you're touching the land and the fresh air and you're, and you're getting out of the stressors that can cause um, cause depression or cause the, the items that can cause depression for those who are chronically depressed uh, to flare, right? The chemical imbalances and things like that. Um, so for my listeners, and I, I, Tom, I think you would agree, uh, I would encourage you to go touch the ground, put your hand in the soil, and if you're, you should feel good. Soil is not dirt. Soil is what brings life. It brings life for everything that we do. It all starts right there from your, whether it be your food or your clothing, it all starts with the, how healthy your soil is because it's what brings forth everything. And with that, this has been More Than a Refresh, a podcast about data and the people who wrangle it. And our guest today was Tom Michaels, professor of horticulture at the University of Minnesota and founder of the Open Source Seed Initiative. This podcast is hosted by JD, Command Prompt Founder and Postgres Conference Chair, and is produced by me, Lindsay Hooper, Director of Events at Command Prompt, Inc. Command Prompt provides Postgres support, professional services, custom development, and community leadership. Since 1997, we've focused on providing just excellent service, custom tailored to your organization's needs. We'll see you soon, wherever you get your podcasts.